Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, this is Emma, Senior Account Manager at the Webby Awards. The 24th Annual Webby Awards is open for entries. We have all new categories this year for your work in podcasts, social, immersive and mixed reality video, and much more. Check out all the categories and enter by the early entry deadline on Friday, October 25th to take advantage of the best pricing. Enter your work at webbyawards.com. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. The planet needed a win. Climate education investments create solutions. Even dogs trust NASA's science. Act now or face disaster. Hey there, and welcome back to the Webby Podcast. It is season six, and we have a great lineup of guests in store for you. We're so glad you made it. You don't have to explore far these days to know that we are already grappling with the results of climate change. Deadly hurricanes in the tropics, wildfires ripping through California last year, and floods all over the world. According to my next guest and scientists worldwide, if we continue at our current emissions rate, we're due to experience catastrophic levels of damage by just 2050. David Wallace-Wells is a journalist and author of the New York Times bestseller, The Uninhabitable Earth. Even with all we know today about climate change, it is still a shocking book to read as it takes us through the near and long-term reality and damage we are likely to live through due to climate change. At this year's Webby Awards, David presented the Webby Social Movement of the Year Award to 16-year-old Greta Thunberg for starting the Fridays for Future movement and her inspiring actions to push global policymakers towards creating zero emissions worldwide. While reading David's book and talking to him is not necessarily what you'd call uplifting, I personally felt better off and even a bit empowered now that I really understand what we are all facing. So the earth is warming. That is definitely a fact that I heard loud and clear reading your book. Can you talk a bit about what are the primary sources of that warming? Just I think that most people know and get it, but just to really sort of like set the table, if you will, like what are the things that are warming the earth? Mostly it's that we're just putting carbon in the atmosphere. So um, that's mostly in the form of carbon dioxide, some methane, um, and these are greenhouse gases, which we've now known for about 150 years, form a kind of blanket and warm the planet a bit. The more that there's up there, the warmer it'll get. And that warming has happened almost entirely just in the last 30 years, which is the most remarkable fact in the whole book for me. More than half the emissions that we've produced in the entire history of humanity have come in the last 30 years, which is since Al Gore published his first book on warming. It's since the UN established their climate change body, the IPCC. And I'm 37 years old, so my life contains that story. Like when I was born, scientists were worried about the distant future when it came to climate change. But in the near and medium term, they were comfortable. They thought things were stable. We're now at the brink of what they call the threshold of catastrophe. And that's because of what's happened just in those 30 years. We're doing that damage very, very much in, in real time. 
And the temperature reflects that. So we're now 1.1 degrees warmer than the planet was before the Industrial Revolution started. And that might not sound like very much, 1.1 degrees, but it means that we're actually already entirely outside the window of temperatures that enclose all of human history. So the planet is now warmer than it has ever been in all of human history. And that means that, you know, everything we know of is the evolution of the human animal, the development of agriculture, the development of civilization, of modern civilization, everything we think of as the biological creature we are, the cultural creature we are, the political creature that we are, all of those developed under climate conditions that no longer prevail. So the earth was the earth has been warmer at some points before, but not when people were living on it. Yeah, or, I mean, or any any sort of animals or yeah, there there have been a, a a number of what are called mass extinctions in the past, where the biggest one was called the End Permian, was two hundred fifty million years ago, and much as ninety seven percent of all life on Earth died. There have been kind of huge fluctuations in the temperature of the Earth in the past, but we are only um, acclimated to this very narrow band of temperatures, which we are now outside of. So I I think of it like. We've sort of landed on a new planet as a species, as a civilization, and we have to figure out what of the civilization that we brought with us can survive under these new climate conditions, even as they continue to change. So we're at 1.1 degrees now, and that means we're already seeing, you know, dramatically more wildfires, um, drought, famine, more intense hurricanes happening more frequently, incredible flooding events like the one we saw in the Midwest this spring that basically wiped out an entire year of American planting. And we're due for, in the next decade or so, if we don't change course, to get to probably about two decades, get to about two degrees of warming, which is the level of warming that scientists call the threshold of catastrophe. Let's just say we, all of a sudden, tomorrow morning, never happened in in the evolution of human beings. We suddenly changed in, you know, the 12 hours between now and then. Snapped our fingers. It's like, just like that, there's a magic wand. We're at, we're at two degrees, basically, no matter what. That's a. I think, um, practically speaking, if that happened, we would probably get to about 1.6 or 1.7. Um, there's a lot of, you know, there's some delayed warming of the planet, which accounts for most of that. But when you factor in the sort of political, economic, cultural obstacles to dramatic action, I think functionally, um, we don't have a chance of staying below two degrees. So sure. I think that's about our best case scenario, probably even better than best case. But at the moment, scientists are still very eager to get us to focus on doing things to avoid two degrees. Frankly, I think that's sort of a lost cause. At at two degrees, which is what island nations of the world, world call genocide, we'd permanently lose all of the Arctic and Antarctic ice sheets. So that would take centuries to, for them to melt, but it would be irreversible at that point. And that would add probably about 250 or 260 feet of sea level rise to the planet. We would have such intense direct heat in South Asia and the Middle East that some of the biggest cities there would be unlivable in summer. So you couldn't go out around outside during summer without risking heat stroke and, and death. These are cities that today have 10 or 12, 15 million people in them. And that's one reason why the UN thinks that, again, at 2050, at just two degrees of warming, we're likely to have as many as 200 million climate refugees. They think it's possible we have 1 billion climate refugees, which is as many people as live today in North and South America combined. So that's two degrees, which is, I think, about our best case scenario. And we're on track for about four degrees of warming this century. At four degrees, we're talking about a global GDP that would be probably 30% smaller than it would be otherwise, which is an impact that's twice as deep as the Great Depression. It would be permanent. It would mean $600 trillion in climate damages, which is double all the wealth that exists in the world today. There'd be places on the planet that could be hit by six climate-driven natural disasters at once. We'd have agricultural yields that are half as bountiful as they are today, and we'd be using them to feed probably 50% more people. 
And we probably have twice as much war because there's a kind of a relationship between temperature and conflict, not just the behavior of states, but actually of individuals. So rates of murder go up, um, rates of rape go up, rates of domestic assault go up. And in fact, there's effects all the way down to mental health where you see spikes in depression and outbreaks of, of schizophrenia. It also affects the development of children in utero. So you can see the number of days that a baby was in the womb that were over 90 degrees. You can see that number in their lifetime earnings. There's like a direct effect wow. between how the, the temperature in which they were growing and, and their, their life outcomes. Some of those impacts are even more dramatic when you're looking at air pollution, which affects cognition and autism and ADHD, low birth weight and premature birth also. All told, I think the big picture is that no matter where you look in the modern world, there is both a carbon impact, like you're causing carbon to be emitted through what you do, and you're being hit by um, the impacts of climate change. So there's almost no aspect of modern life that will be unaffected by this, especially if we don't change course anytime soon. No matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter how rich you are, it's not just about getting away from the sea. You will be impacted in some way or other because the century is going to be defined by this force in some really, really profound ways. And and these, like most of these consequences that you're describing, these are like by 2100. Well, yeah, the four degrees. This isn't like 350 years from now. At four degrees, we're talking, these, most of these things are. Four degrees probably will hit just about 2100 if we stay, right. stay on the course we're on now. Yeah. I think probably actually we're going to bend that curve so it'll take a bit longer, but I don't think that we're going to zero out on emissions fast enough, which means I think we will get to four degrees sometime next century. But on the, on the track we're on, yeah, we're, we're on track for 4.3 degrees this century. But things, the really dramatic impacts, they start to hit really at about 1.5 degrees, which is going to happen in the next decade. And at two degrees, even more so. And that's one, re for me, one really important thing to keep in mind is that every tick upward of temperature is going to create more suffering. Every tick upward that we can avoid is going to allow us to avoid some suffering. But it's not a binary thing where it's like, is climate change here or is it not here? Are we screwed or are we not screwed? It's always going to be the case that no matter how hot it is, the planet could still get hotter and cause more pain and suffering, or we could choose to prevent it from getting hotter and to prevent that pain and suffering. 2050 is, you know, if you took out a mortgage today, you'd just have paid it off in 2050. I just had a, a baby last year. My daughter is probably going to be maybe not even having kids at that point. She'd be thinking about having kids at that point. We're talking about whole, the whole equatorial band of the planet becoming, if not literally uninhabitable, then so difficult to live in that um, it's hard to imagine life enduring in any of the ways that we think of today as being comfortable. And, you know, some people say, oh, like, we can just air condition those parts of the world. And that's true. And to some degree, we could. Um, but already, you know, last year, the U.S. emissions went up in part because we were using more air conditioning because there were more hotter days on the planet. So if we're really using more resources to cool right. the planet to make it livable, then we're also making the problem worse by emitting more carbon. Um, and there's a, there's like, I, I want to talk about those in a bit. There's the, one of the things really struck me was how many feedback loops there were in the book that you described where we're doing things that are creating emissions, if you will, but those things actually then unlock a whole bunch of natural things that cause emissions. So I want to talk about that in a second, but First of all, I feel like this is a good time to tell people that, and you should tell them that like, it's not like since the age of three years old, you've been like a climate <laughs> justice warrior. Not that there's anything wrong with people who have, you know, been advocating for change because of climate change for a long time, but like, you're not the natural person who would have championed this or been writing about this, say 10 or 15 years ago, if I'd asked you about this, right? Totally. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I, even now, don't even feel totally comfortable thinking of myself as an environmentalist. I've spent 
my whole life living in New York and really felt that whole time that nature was something that was elsewhere, that I was living in the modern world, which was a fortress against nature. And I was protected against climate change. And even if I knew it was something that was going to affect the planet in some ways, I both trusted that my leaders were going to take control of it and also thought that it was really a matter of impacts arriving elsewhere on the planet. And I had a kind of awakening a few years ago where the deeper I got into this research, the more I was talking to scientists, the more I just realized that there was no there was no escaping it. When you really do reckon with the economic impacts, the agricultural impacts, the extreme heat, the wildfires, all that stuff, you just realize that it's an all-encompassing thing. Literally, it sounds like a naive revelation, but it was a revelation to me. We all live within nature. Like when we breathe air, that's nature. We walk around outside, that's nature. Even when we're inside our houses, inside our apartment buildings, I'm sort of temporarily living on the 72nd floor in an apartment building in New York City, which is like a cartoon of someone who thinks they live outside of nature. And yet, like my life is determined by those forces in a lot of ways as profoundly as our hunter-gatherer ancestors' lives were. But we've sort of allowed ourselves to fall into this delusion that we have engineered our way out of nature and defeated nature. And I think that's one reason why so many of us, including me until quite recently, were really reluctant to take the threat of climate change seriously because we felt like we had built up a kind of military defense um, against this system when in fact really what we were doing was provoking it, making it spiral out of control in ways that are going to soon become too large and difficult for us to you know, respond to um, easily. And at that point, I think what shape human civilization um, takes, I think is very much an open question. I'm not one of these you know, people on the, on the kind of fringe environmentalist left who think that civilization is going to collapse or anything like that. But I do think that if we're living in a world this century that's two or three or even four degrees warmer, so much of what we've taken for granted as permanent features of modern life are going to be changed. Our intuitions about whether the future really heralds progress, our sense of whether technology has been good for us or bad for us, our expectation that our children's lives will be better than ours, or even just that the earth has kind of infinite bounty yeah. that we can draw from endlessly. I think all of these things are going to become at least open questions and in becoming open questions are going to really change the way that so many of us experience the world and place ourselves in it. Because, you know, I, I speak for myself, I'm a, a relatively well-off child of New York in the 1990s. You know, I'm, I have all of these kind of neoliberal technocratic intuitions. I would have argued with you back then if you told me that, you know, capitalism was a pure good or history was a straight line of progress. But I also, at my core, really did believe that, you know, greater global cooperation was going to bring better outcomes for people, generally speaking, that progress might be erratic, but it was also reliable. And knowing more about climate change now, and also in the context of the political situation that we're all living through, which I don't think is entirely disconnected from climate change, makes all of those things seem much more precarious propositions. And I don't really know what kind of a perspective I would have on the world if I had to abandon them entirely. And I think probably we're all going to have to at least revise our expectations about the future um, in the face of climate change. The question is whether we'll take action quickly enough that we don't have to revise them dramatically, only marginally. Yeah. And I think that's ultimately an open question that's up to us to answer. Well, one of the things you bring up in the book that really marked me was this concept that like, if you were to graph progress, like on a sort of a graph chart, and then also graph sort of like either the impact or the rate of warming or whatever it may be, that those two lines are, are basically the same. Like the same. First of all, I guess, what are the 
the main contributors in what we do uh, in the world today to emissions? And like sort of how does that track back to the beginning with the Industrial Revolution and what we think of as progress? Let me actually take the second part of it first. Sure. So, um, you know, for all of human history, until about 250 years ago, there was no such thing as economic growth. Like some people accumulated some wealth, but it was usually at the expense of others. And generally speaking, whenever there was like a good harvest or a bountiful period in some country's economic history, immediately there would be enough population growth that growth would be redistributed again so that the population like regained the same subsistence level. And as a result, there was no expectation that future lives would be better than past lives at all. And there wasn't even all that much of a sense that history moved on a line. There were a lot of theories of cyclical history because that was really the experience of most people in the world. That changed with the Industrial Revolution. There's some debate about exactly what role the discovery of fossil fuels played in that. Um, but one, I think, compelling argument is that it was a quite dominant role. That is like we basically just discovered this huge storehouse of free energy in the planet, first in the form of wood and coal and then later oil. And we just were able to use that energy to power a huge amount of economic growth. And, you know, I, I wouldn't subscribe to this theory entirely, but I th again, I think it's quite compelling to say that you can, you know, you can say the entire history of economic growth is really the story of the discovery and exploitation of those fossil fuels. You know, there are other theories that it's, it has a lot to do with institution building and culture and capitalism and, the, you know, the free market, and those played a role. But I think if you eliminated the fossil fuel power, I think we would be living in a very, very different world now. And with much, much less growth, much, much less wealth, much less expectation of growth and wealth over time. And that is true on the timescale of, you know, the 250, 300 years of industrialization. It's also true on the timescale of the last 25 years. So a lot of contrarian business class thinkers you know, are eager to point out these days that this period of time when people in the wealthy West and the U.S. have experienced a real slowdown in their economic fortunes, that it's been an incredible boom period for the people in the developing world, which is totally true there. Poverty has been reduced drastically. Education has gone up around the world incredibly. Infant mortality, maternal mortality have collapsed. There have been unbelievable gains in these areas that really 25 years ago, most people would have thought were unthinkable. But that is almost entirely the story of the industrialization of those parts of the world, that those places got richer because they had their own industrializations. We often in places like the U.S. and Europe think that the Industrial Revolution was something that happened 200 years ago and we left it behind, you know, 50, 75 years ago. But a lot of the world is only just getting to the Industrial Revolution now. And that is why we're in the situation we're in. When I said earlier that half of all the emissions have been produced in the last 30 years, really that is because of the, the industrialization of the developing world. Now, that I don't want to say that it's That's, their fault. It's their fault. Yeah, because we know, did it first. We benefited we just, so yeah, much from yeah. it, and they were like, we want to grow too, obviously. And thankfully, there's sort of new economic conventional wisdom just in the last couple of years that they'll no longer have to choose between growing responsibly and growing rapidly, that growing more responsibly may actually lead to more economic growth too, which is really great and changes the calculus of how we think about the future. But in the last 30 years or so, it really has been the case that planet's climate was relatively stable. People were worried about the medium term and the long term, but not the short term. And now, 30 years later, we're very worried about things in the very short term because of the industrialization of the developing world. So the question is, can we move forward without a carbon-based economy and carbon-based growth? And, you know, in part because of the economic 
thinking that I just mentioned that, you know, we're, we're now starting to see real hope on that front that we could continue to grow without um, relying so much on dirty energy. In part, that's because the cost of renewables have fallen really quickly, so much so that they're cost competitive with dirty energy in most parts of the world. They will be cheaper than dirty energy in all parts of the world in relatively short order. Also because there are huge business opportunities. If you sort of take for granted that we're going to redesign the world, there are huge empires to be made in this. But of course, you know, energy, which is the area that we think of most of the time when we think about combating climate change, is only a part of the puzzle. It's about, depending on how you count, about 35 or 40 percent of the problem. And it's actually the easiest one to solve because we have substitutes, especially in a place like the U.S., we have substitutes already that can just replace our dirty energy sources with our clean energy sources. It would take time to build out that infrastructure. There are complications about energy storage and all that. But basically, we have the tools we need to replace our... What's our, the other 60%? Agriculture is about 35%. Transportation, industry, and uh, infrastructure. You know, infrastructure, cement were a country. It would be the world's third biggest emitter. And China is now pouring as much cement every three years as the U.S. poured in the entire 20th century. So we need a new kind of cement that doesn't produce carbon. We need the, new, act of, the act of pouring cement. It's it's creating, creating it more than, than pouring it. But um, And agriculture is probably is cows or just everything? It's complicated. I, a lot of it has to do – I mean it's technically it's agriculture and land use. So a big part of that is deforestation, that we're still in lots of the world clearing forests to make use for agricultural lands. That's happening maybe most dramatically right now in Brazil, where Jair Bolsonaro is very aggressively deforesting the Amazon, which is really scary. The Amazon is really our single best natural resource fighting climate change because trees suck carbon out of the atmosphere and put out oxygen. And he's now clearing the equivalent of three football fields every minute. But it's happening everywhere in the developing world, basically. Just to restate, and it's on some levels, is the same thing you were saying about developing countries starting... To, you know, industrialization as well. I mean, it's not as if all the other countries that have come before Indonesia and Brazil also, maybe we didn't have Amazons, but also cleared forests and did all these things in order to have more wood and more fuel and all the reasons that they're yeah. more land and everything as well, right? That's true. That's totally true. It's also the case that a lot of those countries are actually rebounding in their in their forest cover, doing a lot of planting sort of for now for climate reasons, but over the last decade or two, just for kind of ecological reasons. Wealthy countries like green, <laughs> um, people like to live around trees. Right. So there have been an effort, especially in a lot of European countries, to reforest. And that could happen in the developing world too. But there's also just the, at the actual agricultural level, yeah, like cattle produce an enormous amount of methane through their burps and farts. And they also kick up a lot of soil. And in general, mass agriculture creates a lot of soil erosion and soil is kind of like trees in that it naturally stores a lot of carbon. So if you kick up a lot of soil, it releases a lot of carbon. I think the data is at the moment there's twice as much carbon stored in the soil as is in the atmosphere. So we're losing soil at a quite rapid rate. I don't remember the details right now, but if we adapted different farming techniques that it's called regenerative agriculture that were directed at sort of protecting that soil would be in much better shape. There are also regenerative, regenerative agricultural practices that would turn cattle farming from what's called a carbon source to what's called a carbon sink. It would allow the farming to actually absorb more carbon. And we can also feed cattle seaweed. They're small-scale studies, but they show that if we do that, we'll reduce their methane emissions by as much as 95 or 99 percent. It seems like at every turn, when you were describing in the book and writing in the book about all these 
bad effects that happen because of climate change. Also that those bad effects then unlocked and triggered like more bad things, right? So melting ice released more carbon in that was stored in ice. Forests burning released the carbon that was stored. There's this concept of uh, these areas being sinks for carbon that you're bringing up and, set, and now starting to emit them. Can you talk more about that and in some of those, in some of the places that that will happen and is happening? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's sort of one of the scarier parts of the story in the sense that we don't have a really good idea of when some of these feedback loops get triggered. And a lot of them could be quite powerful. So there's twice as much carbon in the soil that's as, as is stored in the atmosphere. There's also twice as much carbon in the permafrost in the northern latitudes frozen in that permafrost as exists in the atmosphere. And that permafrost is melting quite quickly. Um, a lot of that carbon, when it's released, it's expected will be released as methane, which um, stays in the atmosphere for a much shorter amount of time than carbon dioxide, but is much more powerful as a greenhouse gas. Depending on when you count, it could it's either a 30 or 30 times or 80 times more powerful. So as the permafrost melts, a lot of the carbon will be released. That's already happening. A few years ago, scientists were saying this is not going to happen for, for decades, maybe for generations. Um, it's not something we need to worry about in short order. But the incredible melting that we've seen in the Arctic over the last couple of years, we're already seeing a release of a lot of, of, of Arctic carbon, and that's really scary. The loss of ice in the Arctic is scary in the sense that, you know, white surfaces reflect sunlight. That's why in the summer, if you're wearing a white t-shirt, you'll be cooler than if you're wearing a black t-shirt, which absorbs sunlight. And when ice melts, then what used to be a huge white part of the Arctic and Antarctic becomes dark blue because that's the color of water. And that means that the planet absorbs more of the sun's solar rays, which makes the planet warmer. The forest fires that you mentioned, and a lot of people don't really understand this, and it is kind of mind-bending to think about, but a tree is really like a piece of coal and that it's a store of carbon. And so when we're talking about forest fires burning through whole parts of, say, California, and the numbers there are quite dramatic, the, the rise of, of fires, we're dealing with at least 10 times more fires than we, we used to see. It's not just that we're losing that land, um, losing those homes. It's also that we're releasing all of this additional carbon into the atmosphere, so much so that each of the last two years, so much carbon has been emitted into the atmosphere through those forest fires that it counteracted all of the really progressive green energy policies that the state of California had put into place, um, making all of that political activism, which is, you know, it's the most we've been able to do anywhere in the U.S., totally redundant. Yeah. And yeah, there are these sort of, they're called feedback loops. They, they are almost everywhere you look in climate and they are quite scary. Maybe the scariest has to do with the formation of these uh, phytoplankton in the in the bottom of the ocean, which are the source of most of the world's oxygen, which may be reaching a tipping point where they no longer are able to, to breed or thrive in the ocean because the oceans are too warm and too full of carbon themselves, since oceans also absorb carbon directly. Oceans also may reach a tipping point where they can no longer absorb carbon. Each of these feedback loops are you know, huge uncertainty bars over how we can project the future of the climate. We sort of have a pretty good sense of some of the direct impacts. It's like we know we put this much carbon into the atmosphere, the planet's going to warm this amount. But when all of these other things come into play, we don't yet know. And if they come into play faster than we expect, things are going to get dramatically, dramatically worse, even than the scenarios were you know, scheduled for expecting, which are themselves quite scary. Yeah, I mean, when I was reading it, it just felt like this incredibly complicated and smart, like ticking time dom. Like it... Every single bad thing that could happen had a 
had like another secondary effect that that yeah. made things even worse and it was kind of like overwhelming but also awesome in the like godly sense right like that there was just like some system that's like unraveling when you get to you get to this point yeah i mean a lot of scientists will say you know the planet will survive it's the humans that sure. might not yeah and you know a lot of a lot of kind of climate denier climate skeptics will say sort of the same thing they'll say we've been through this before right. And, you know, to that again, I say, like, first of all, the, the temperature changes are happening much more rapidly than have ever happened in the history of the planet before. And some of those really dramatic warming events, which took place over the course of tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of years, and now we're dealing with ones that are going to be taking place over the course of centuries, so much, much, much faster, they killed off practically all life on Earth. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's... In to put it lightly, incredibly foolish to take comfort in the fact that we've been through this kind of thing before. Instead, we should be looking at the experience of those past mass extinctions and saying, we need to do everything we can to avoid yeah. that from happening. But I, I think one of the things I do kind of originally or uniquely in the book is that because I'm coming at the subject not as an environmentalist, not as someone who is a first, first a lover of nature, but comes at, almost as a human chauvinist, I am moved by some of the things that you're moved by, the simple majesty and spectacle of the whole drama and the scale of it, which is really, you know, not just exhilarating, but kind of empowering in the sense that if all of these things come to pass, you know, they are terrifyingly large impacts, but the scale of them is a reflection of our power over the climate, because at least for the moment, you know, some of these feedback loops may start to kick in later in the century. But at least for now, the main driver of this story is what we do. It's how much carbon we put into the atmosphere. And that means we are in control of that story. We have our hands on those levers. You know, we're not just witnessing this. We are the protagonists. And if it's the case as it is, as I mentioned earlier, that, you know, in a single generation, we've brought the planet from a stable situation to the brink of catastrophe... Now we have about that much time, 30 more years, to avert some of these worst-case outcomes by taking action. That means that that story will be contained in my lifetime too, God willing. That means that, you know, over the course of my lifetime, I will have seen the planet brought to the brink of destruction and then hopefully restored to livable, comfortable, just prosperity. And whether or not we get all the way there... I will be witnessing the effort of humanity to achieve that. And that is simply a scale of drama that it's almost mind-bending to contemplate. It makes me really uncomfortable to use these words, but it is drama that we used to see only in mythology and theology. We are literally in the position of gods. We have the fate of the world and the future of the species in our hands. And there are a lot of really important questions about, you know, what do I mean by we and our? And when I say our hands are on those levers. What levers are we talking about? You know, there are a lot of human obstacles to human action here. But ultimately, pulling back and taking the very big view, we have engineered these changes in the climate. And at least in theory, we can engineer our way out of them. Right. But right. it's not like we don't know why it's happening. And I mean, I always sort of think when the when climate deniers or people who don't deny maybe that there's change and they just say, like, we're not causing it, it's natural – they should be like even more scared than totally. anybody else, right? I mean, if they don't even know why it's happening, that yeah. be, that's a thousand times worse. It would mean we have no way of controlling it. Right. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think climate denial is and climate skepticism is it's a movement of emotional intuitions in search of arguments. It's not really um, one that arises from anything you could really call like rigorous thinking. On the other hand, I sort of understand those impulses too, because I don't want to look at this material myself. I spent the last three years really deep in it. And yet I still find ways to compartmentalize and live in denial. And I think we all do. And I think we should also reckon a little bit with not just our own complicity in the system, you know, when we walk down the street, when we get into a car, when we buy produce at a supermarket, when we buy plane tickets to go on vacation, all of these things are having an impact on the future. But also the way that we choose to avoid responsibility and choose to look away. You know, there's one study I talk about in the book says if at two degrees, which again is a level I think we're inevitably going to get to, will just through the impact of air pollution will cause 153 million additional deaths. And that's mind-blowing and harrowing. And whenever I say it to people, their their sort of eyes open wide and their faces go gray. And, you know, they think or say that's an unconscionable level of suffering. We can't possibly let that happen. And that's a reasonable response, right? It's death at the scale of 25 holocausts. But 9 million people are dying every year already from air pollution. And you and I and everyone we know are not especially focused on that fact or those people. And I think among the other things that I'm writing about in the book is our incredible capacity for compartmentalization and renormalization such that effects that today look to us completely unlivable will find ways to live among and even define as okay, even if that requires us to really turn down our empathy and not respond to the suffering of other humans elsewhere in the world. In fact, I think we're sort of seeing that a little bit already with the way our geopolitics is moving away from a sort of international cooperative spirit, positive some game view of the world and towards a more nativistic, zero-sum sense of self-interest at the level of nations, but even at the level of ethnic communities within nations and classes within nations And I think that's really damaging. I think it's going to make it a lot harder for us to offer the kind of warm-hearted response to climate that we would really like to see. If there are really going to be hundreds of millions of people in need, I would like to see the wealthy nations of the world opening their hearts, being more warm-hearted. But I think it seems likelier that the opposite is going to be the case. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what what people can do. And having studied this, and I'm sure spoken to, you know, tons of different types of people that are affected by this and policymakers and the like, like what are the, what are the major levers to reducing emissions? And I know it's a big question and I, I'm not really looking for the answer of like, well, people should stop flying. Although if that's the answer, that's fine. I don't, but I just mean that like that it, you would have to do something else to get everybody to stop flying. Right. Yeah. So like, what are the sort of like high level you know, things. Yeah, well, I would, I, would, I would say first, you know, I think if people do want to reduce their individual carbon footprints, they should. There are a lot of good arguments for that. First of all, if you just want to live within your values, that's valuable. If it spurs conversations with people around you about how important you think this issue is, which is itself important. It signals to policymakers that you're focused on it and also that we can live kind of prosperous, fulfilling lives and still be responsible, which is all, all valuable things to signal to our policymakers. But ultimately, the problem is just way too big to solve through individual action. We need policy responses. And that means for me, the main thing that any individual can do is to act politically, which is to say at the very minimal level to vote, but also 
to organize, to protest, to hold the people who are in office to account for the promises they made in the past and to push them to make more serious commitments. And on that agenda, you know, for me, the lowest hanging fruit is just subsidies. The IMF, which is, you know, not at all like a lefty green organization, they just recently estimated that globally fossil fuel business is being um, subsidized to the tune of $5.3 trillion a year. And a recent report that came out a week or two ago suggested that we could bring about a rapid transition from a dirty energy economy to a clean energy economy by redirecting just 10 to 30% of those subsidies. So we wouldn't even have to eliminate the subsidies entirely. We would just need to redirect between 10 and 30% of them towards green energy. Now, I would like to eliminate them entirely. And in addition to subsidizing renewables in a way that would allow that um, them to be deployed more rapidly, also invest in R&D for areas that are a little harder to transition. So, you know, I mentioned earlier, the energy sector, we think about it as the dominant challenge, but it's actually the easiest one to solve. Trying to figure out a new way to fly planes so that they don't emit carbon, that's a lot trickier. We're a lot farther from that. We probably need a lot more R&D on that. We need more R&D on zero carbon cement. We need more R&D on how we build buildings so that they don't store carbon and, and produce carbon. And we need to do a lot more research into how we can most effectively reforest the areas that we want to reforest because, you know, there's there's a lot of enthusiasm about reforestation as a solution to climate change, and it, it almost certainly will be a part of the solution. But relying on it entirely would require that we use two-thirds of the world's arable land, which I don't think is possible. So I think it's much more important that we develop some agricultural approaches that maximize the, the carbon effect of replanting. And then there's also, you know, technological solutions to carbon capture. It's called direct air capture. We have machines that take carbon out of the atmosphere. Again, there's a lot of enthusiasm for this as a kind of silver bullet solution. As in everything with climate, I don't think there's any silver bullet solution. But I think we want to make those technologies a lot cheaper and a lot more scalable in time. So my like day one, if I'm the dictator of the world, you know, executive order is immediately eliminate all fossil fuel subsidies, redirect some chunk of that to subsidize renewable energy and some chunk of it to R&D to develop technology, which is maybe especially useful investment in that that IP can then be exported quite easily to the rest of the world. So one of the reasons we've had this incredible renewable energy progress over the last decade is that the stimulus package that was passed in 2009 under Obama included a, a large amount of investment in, in solar technology. And that has really spurred adoption of solar by the rest of the world. We could do that in a lot of areas. And, you know, I think we need to, morally we're obligated to because we are historically responsible for the lion's share of historical emissions in the, in the U.S. is, I think, a third of all historical emissions. And we only have 4% of the world's population. But ultimately, you know, the climate story of the next few decades will be written by the developing world who are growing much more in their emissions. And so anything that we can do in the U.S. that meaningfully and immediately affects the emissions trajectory of those countries is probably more important than things we can do even to affect our own emissions trajectories. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There was a, I think, like a paragraph or a part of your book where you sort of touch on this idea that like as this problem has become more and more real is also the sort of the same timing that we've just barely begun to like organize our world in a way that we can solve problems together as like a, as a whole globe, as opposed to as like a country or a tribe, that that's a fairly recent thing. It's nascent. A lot of these institutions are not nearly formed well enough to like really do that much. They do inform a lot of the problem we're talking about. Certainly like the UN is a great place for research and information mm-hmm. and so forth. Do you think that part of this also is that we have to – that the global institutions, if you will, or whatever the future of global cooperation has to actually improve as well? That like we have to get better at working with other countries and, and sort of develop that human skill to a greater extent? I think 100%. I mean, I think it's actually the biggest challenge, a much bigger challenge than solving the climate politics of individual nations, I think, is solving the geopolitics of the issue. Because every nation, even China, which is responsible for 28% of emissions, even the US, which is responsible for 15% of emissions, but especially almost all the other countries of the world, who are most of them at most responsible for 1% of all global emissions, face this really perverse incentive structure, which is you know, say, take Australia. They recently went through an election that was actually run on climate. There was a, a liberal challenger who was expected to win, widely expected to win. And it was going to be a major victory for climate. Australia's an unusual country in that mostly it's the poor countries of the world that are being hit hardest by climate change. But Australia is sort of the one outlier. It's like the one wealthy country that's already experiencing intense impacts of climate change. And this was expected to be an election that really turned the corner on their climate politics. But in fact, the conservative incumbent won in part by campaigning against the cost of climate action. And, you know, on some level, I understand that appeal. This is a country that's responsible for 1% of all carbon emissions. And so if they tomorrow totally zeroed out on what they were doing, produce not a single ton of carbon ever again, they would still be living in exactly the same climate two or three decades from now if the rest of the world didn't take action with them. And so... The incentive structure is there is so backward. Everybody is really only incentivized to take action if everybody else is also taking action. And that is really concerning given that we're living in an international order that, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, you would say um, the international organizations of the world are strengthening or coming together. But over the last five years, 10 years, depending on how you want to count, really since the financial crisis, I guess, so many of those institutions are fraying. So many of those cooperative relationships are being distended and so many more nations are retreating into more nativism, more xenophobia, more sense of narrowly defined self-interest. And if we weren't able to solve or address the climate crisis under those old conditions, it's going to be even harder under these new conditions. But I think it's absolutely necessary that we find some way to work together globally because if we're relying on individual nations. I just don't think the incentives are strong enough there to motivate anyone to action with the possible exception of China and the US. So China is a country that feels it's really coming into its own as an imperial power. 
They believe that this is going to be their century. They're going to rule the world. That's why they have this Belt and Road Initiative where they're basically building the infrastructure of Asia and Africa in a way that the U.S. sort of did in the, in the 19th and 20th centuries. And I don't think that they want to preside over a world that's on fire and totally deprived of economic wealth. They want to be sucking some of that wealth out of the rest of the world. And so even though they are um, themselves sort of relatively well positioned to endure climate impacts, they're supposed to produce four times – their share of global emissions is expected to be four times as large as their share of climate impacts, which is, a, again, a bad incentive system. But I think that there are enough – It's still a lot. It's The impact is still bad for them. It's, it's still, still bad, bad, especially yeah. if they're starting to think of themselves as the stewards of the world. Right. And that's really, I think, on the China front what we have to hope for. And between the U.S. and China, you know, really those are the two global hegemons at the moment. And they are, between the two of them, responsible for almost half of all global emissions. And that means if those two countries were really dedicated – I think they could sort of whip the rest of the world into action. Unfortunately, in the U.S., we have a, a president who's sort of taking the opposite path. And in China, there are reasons for hope. They are doing a lot of investment in renewable energy, a lot, like putting us to shame. And at a rhetorical level, Xi Jinping, I think, has been sort of turned on by the fact that Donald Trump has retreated from the role of moral leader and sort of tried to seize that mantle for, for China. But they're still opening coal plants and still, you know, burning a lot of oil and, and natural gas and, and wood, all of which is really bad. But even so, there, there was a report a few weeks ago showing that China may reach its, its peak emissions 10 years earlier than it had pre been previously expected, which would be really great news, probably the only good news we've had in the last – the most meaningful good news we've had in the last couple of years. If those two nations could conceivably get on the same page, which could happen as soon as, you know, the next American presidential administration. Um, I think there could be some real meaningful progress there that wouldn't require a new international order, but in fact could sort of call into being that international order because the two most powerful countries in the world would be so committed to establishing it. David Wallace-Wells, thanks for joining us on the Webby Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much to David for stopping by the studio. Be sure to pick up a copy of The Uninhabitable Earth. You will learn a lot and be glued to the pages along the way. There are plenty of ways to get involved in the fight for climate justice. The first is by joining Greta Thunberg and young activists around the world during the global climate strike happening September 20th through the 27th. To learn more and participate, visit globalclimatestrike.net and visit the notes section of this episode of the podcast where we will have links to David's book and more about Greta's movement. You can learn more about the Webby Awards at webbyawards.com, that's W-E-B-B-Y awards.com, and on most social platforms at The Webby Awards. Oh, and it's also call for entry season here at the Webby, so if you've made any great internet work you think is top-notch, visit the site and consider entering into this, our 24th Webby Awards. The early deadline is October 25th. And if you like the Webby podcast and would like to support it, take a couple of seconds to give us a rating in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you really like it and want to go the extra mile, leave us a review. As always, you can reach me on social at DMDLikes. Our producer is Terrence Brosnan. Our writer is Jordana Jarrett. Our editorial director is Nicola Ferraro. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is you. I'm your host, David Michelle Davies, and this is the Webby podcast.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.